You guys look so cute in your snow boots. You really do. Hey, thanks for braving the weather and the elements and coming and being here, being a part of this gathering at Trace. We know there are many people uh, that have stayed home today, and that's okay, but we're going to make them feel a little bit less like a Christian by making them have a guilt trip. So for all of you watching online today that were scared to brave the elements, uh, you don't love Jesus as much as these people, but no, we're so glad. Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, yeah, we just lost a few members. That's okay. Uh, we're so glad you guys are here, especially if it is your first time with us. I want to extend a special welcome to you. We really are grateful that you're here and that you're a part of this conversation. But I want to do something that I haven't done in the past. Uh, I've got a good friend today. His name's Joe Adams. He's been in a pastoring group um, with me, and he's a church planner, and he's planning Mana Church, and today is their grand opening. They're planning down in southern Colorado Springs, and so of all Sundays to receive snow, it happens on their grand opening. So I just want to do this. If you want uh, just join me in praying for them and what they're doing this morning as they launch a new kingdom endeavor on the south side of town, I would really appreciate it. So let's pray together. Father, man, we are... So excited to see how you're working, not just through Trace, but all around the city, all around the world. And so specifically, God, we lift up Mana Church to you today. God, would you be with them, partner with them, and truly give people courage to to brave the elements and and make the drive and and participate in what I believe is just going to be a beautiful thing that's happening on the south side of the city to make Jesus famous there. And so, God, we just lift them up to you, and uh, we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Joe, if you're watching, man, we love you, and I can't wait to hear what God does in and through Mana Church. Well, today we're concluding our Me Too series, and if you're new to Trace or uh, you've not joined us as we've been in this series, we kicked this off a couple weeks ago, and we did so around this little hashtag right here, hashtag Me Too, and hashtag is this little symbol that we use to draw people into a bigger conversation, typically on social media. And what happened starting in October is that uh, a lot of people started coming forward and talking about different things like sexual abuse and sexual harassment in their life. And I think it's gone over 4 million people now that have gone on and written their own personal Me Too story about those two subjects with the hashtag Me Too. And so we decided that it was time for the church to talk about things like this. And so I kicked off the series a couple weeks ago talking about how we need to come out of hiding because we can't hide and heal at the same time. And it doesn't mean you you share your stuff to everybody, but you need to share it with somebody. And I talked about how if we're not, if we're, if we're not careful, what can happen is we can have wounds that exist from our past where something happened in our life. Oftentimes, the way I explain it was it was a, a sin that was sown into our life that was rooted in something that we had no control over. Somebody did something to us, and what happens is that seed begins to grow inside of us if we don't recognize it, and it can begin to speak lies to us about who we are not. Because only God can tell you who you are. And so we talked about the importance of going back, and even as painful as that can be, uprooting those things that, continue, that could still continue to be uh, feeding us lies. And we talked about how we can't hide and heal at the same time. Well, last week, uh, Corey got up here, and he talked about how we worship a me-too God, that we're not like looking up at some tyrant in the sky that's just keeping tally of all the mistakes and all the things that we're doing wrong, but we really do worship a me-too God. And his big thing is one idea was you can't, or I'm sorry, we can say me too because our God says me too. When Jesus came to us and he walked on this earth, he experienced his own fair share, a lot more than any of us will ever experience, his own fair share of pain and suffering and wounds. And he's our God. And so when we look to him and we're trying to reach out because of our own painful experiences, again, he's not up there as a guy that just doesn't get it. He can actually say me too. Today I'm going to come at our conversation as we conclude the series at a much different angle. And the way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to kind of unfold a topic, and I believe it's something that you probably don't think of often, but as I unfold it, I have a, have a feeling 
that many of you are going to start to think to yourself, you know what? Me too. As much as you don't want to admit it, you're going to start to think to yourself, you know what? I do that too. Me too. And without overstating this next statement, I do really believe what I'm about to say. The thing that I'm going to be talking with you about today very well could be the biggest threat against us as Christ followers in fulfilling God's purpose for our life. And so one of the ways that we're going to um, discover this together is by looking at a specific chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we're not going to go there yet, but if you want to uh, get there ahead of time, feel free to open your Bibles at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You can open up an app and scroll over and find your way there, and we'll pick up there in just a few moments. But let me begin with this story. About 10 years ago, I got my first opportunity to go on a global mission trip. And I went down to this country of Haiti. Many of you know Haiti, obviously. And uh, one of the things about these trips, if you've never been on one, is you have to get like truly inoculated. You get immunized for all types of different things. And so many of those are injections, but one of the specific things in Haiti is malaria. And what you do for malaria is you take a pill. Now, you could either take one very, very strong pill, and it would take care of your time uh, while you were down there, or you could take several pills uh, for 10 days straight. Now, if you decided to take the one pill, there was always the possibility that you may have night terrors. And I was like, no thanks, not interested in night terrors. I'll do the 10 pills in a row. But some people opted for the one pill. So we get down to Haiti, and I'm literally sleeping on top of this compound where many people are. There's probably 100 people there from different countries and states. Uh, it's a mission organization, and so they're coming there to help. And I'm sleeping on top of this compound and literally taking a bath in deep because the mosquitoes there can actually eat you. And uh, I'm up there, and the first night, all of a sudden, ah! And I wake up, and I'm in a foreign country, and all I remember is seeing people carrying machetes, so I'm scared to death at this point. And, but really quick realize that it's somebody close to me that's having a night terror because they chose the one pill. And so we, we, you know, what we learned to do, it almost happened every single night of that, the, the time I was down there. I stayed there for seven nights. And so we'd find out whoever it was, come over, and we'd start to comfort them. It's okay, it's okay, you're okay, you're okay. And I mean, they were freaked out. And they're like, like where am I? Where are you? And they're fighting us. And, and like, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And finally, they'd look around and realize they were okay. Guys, a question that I want all of you to wrestle with this morning is this. Who or what are you looking to, to determine if you're okay? Who or what are you looking to, to determine if you're okay? You see, all of us have a reference point. All of us have a mirror, something that we're looking to in our lives to answer that question, to determine if we're okay. And oftentimes it's looking to our left and looking to our right to see what's happening around us to determine where we are. And ultimately we're just trying to answer this question, this little question, I'm like, am I okay? Like, really? Am I okay? And I believe this is something that happens to us from a young age, and especially the students in here. I believe it starts oftentimes around junior high school and high school, and we start looking around to determine where we are based on where everybody else is, and so it's like, am I, am I okay? And we bring this with us into adulthood, and so let me take a stab at this. Maybe this will help you to identify a little bit with where I'm going. Maybe as moms in the room, sometimes you can be the worst, love you, but it's like, did I breastfeed long enough? I, I really can't believe I'm talking about this right now, but I've got four kids. And you look to your left, oh, uh, I, heard, I heard she only breastfed for 12 months. I made it 18 months. But then you look to your right, oh, man, she, she breastfed for two years. 
am I working hard enough to get my kids in the right school? And you, you, you look to your left, and it's like, well, I'm working harder than, than they are, so I think I'm okay. But man, look how hard they're fighting to get their kids in the right school, private school. Maybe they're paying some money. What about our marriages? Are we okay? We look to our left, and we're doing better than them. Man, I hear they fight all the time, screaming at each other, cussing at each other. Maybe, maybe we're okay. Look to our right. Man, I hear those guys like pray together almost every night, read the Bible all the time, and go to church, go on family vacations. Maybe we're not okay. See, there's always going to be somebody to the left of you that you're doing better than. There's always going to be somebody to the right of you that you're not doing as good as. I'm not immune to this as a pastor. When we started this church, you know, it's a new church, and constantly in the back of my mind, I'm asking the question, like, are we, are we doing okay? So I look to churches over here, and it's like, well, I think we're, we're doing better than those church plants. And Oh, man, but then I hear about these other churches that are just doing phenomenal things for the kingdom of God. And I, are, we, are we doing okay? One of the reasons why this is more of a spiritual issue than you think is because it doesn't stop there. Because as we look to our left and we look to our right, we start to secretly celebrate and feel a little bit of elation when things aren't going so good in other people's lives. And so maybe, you know, as an example, as a mom or a dad or just a friend, maybe you get a phone call from that friend and he or she says, yeah, you know, little Julie or little Johnny, who always seems to have it figured out, man, they're the ones getting the good grades and they're making the clubs and they're also a star athlete. And all of a sudden, this friend shares with you, yeah, little Julie or Johnny made a big mistake. And on the phone, you're like, oh, really? I'm so, man, I'm so sorry to hear that. But inside, you're kind of like, yes, right? Because then you feel a little bit better about your kids. And your kids aren't maybe as bad as you thought they were. Do this in our marriages. That one marriage that you always thought had it together, man, you just, it was the kind of quintessential marriage. And you look to them and, Man, if our marriage could just be like that, and then you hear there's a bump in their relationship, and there's something inside of you that feels a little bit of elation because things aren't as good, maybe we can feel a little bit better about our marriage now. Again, I'm not immune to this as pastors. That one church that seemed to have it all together, and they keep seeing doing incredible things, but all of a sudden you hear that the leader of that church made a really big mistake. There's something inside of you that feels something like, what is that? It feels a little bit better about you. Now, that's not me. That was Corey's confession. He asked me to share that with you. Corey, did I get that right? Is he in here? But we do this, don't we? What is that? What is that? The Bible calls it our flesh. And the reason why this is such a spiritual issue is this. Don't miss this statement. You can't genuinely love someone and secretly hope they'll fail. You can't. You can't genuinely love someone and secretly hope they will fail. In John's Gospel, in chapter 13, Jesus gives us this new command. And he says, if you really want to be my disciple, which is the Greek word for student, or not the Greek word, but it, the Greek word when you look at it, student, it means student. If you really want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, if you want to put your faith in me and make your life about me, here's what I need you to do. I need you to love each other. Like, really. Not just say it. I really need you to love one another. And so maybe now you're starting to pick up on my point. You can't genuinely love someone and secretly hope they will fail. And that's a big spiritual issue because if the main way we show people that we're really serious about being followers of Jesus is loving each other, you can't genuinely do that. 
This is a big deal. If I were to sum this up in two words, this is what I would call it. It's a comparison trap. And it really is a trap. Because no matter how long you look to your left and look to your right to determine where you are and if you're okay, there's always going to be somebody doing not as good as you and always somebody going to be doing better than you. It truly is a trap. And this is why I've concluded with this. It's our one thing for today. There is no win. There is no win in comparison. There just isn't. Now, you may argue and say, well, what about people that we observe and it inspires us, it motivates us, makes us want to strive and be better? I wouldn't call that comparison. I agree with you. But I don't really think that we're comparing our lives to them in that moment. I think we're actually just noticing something that they're doing, and from that, we receive inspiration and motivation. That's a good thing. But when it comes to comparison, like looking to your left and looking to your right, determine where you are based on where everybody else is, there is no win. And so... We're going to digest this together today, and one of the things that we're going to do is look at some of the things that Solomon says. And Solomon, for those of you that are new to church, maybe new to studying the Bible, uh, I'll give you really some background knowledge on him. He was the wisest man who ever lived aside from Jesus, and he asked God to grant him this wisdom. Uh, he lived about 900 years before uh, Jesus came on scene, and uh, if you've ever heard the story, you know David Goliath, he was, he was, Solomon was one of David's sons, King David. And uh, Solomon, truly, the wisest man who ever lived from worldly standards, man, this guy had it all. He had more money than Fort Knox. He slept with the most beautiful women, had hundreds of concubines and hundreds of wives. Had, again, all the wisdom you can imagine. Kings and queens and leaders from all kinds of nations would travel great distances just to come and to be in his presence and to learn from him. From worldly standards, man, this guy had it all. He wasn't looking around or didn't need to look around at all to determine where he was because he was at the top. But towards the end of his life, he writes this little book called Ecclesiastes, which really could be read as a confession from him. And he's thinking back through his life with all the wisdom in the world that he could have that God granted him, and he's making some conclusions. And we get to read those conclusions. So we're going to pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Here's what he says. And I saw that all toil... And all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. You see, after all of Solomon's observations, after seeing what drove people, he concluded with this. The most motivating thing in people's lives from what he's concluded is it's competition. It's people looking to their left and their right and determining where they are based on where everybody else is. And that drives them. But what's such... Why this is so dangerous, why living in a way that's competitive with other people is so dangerous, if our life is a competition, just measuring us up and measuring our success by what, you know, the lack of success over here, or the, the greater levels of success over here, the reason why that is so dangerous is because when we're put in a competition with other people, it's not always this way, but often it can become this way, we want to do better than they do. And if that's true, then we start to have those feelings of elation and we secretly celebrate when other people fail. This is a really big deal. Solomon talks about this in one of the Proverbs that he writes. He says this, Proverbs 14, 1430, he says, A heart at peace, it'll give life to your body. But envy, it's going to rot your bones. See, envy and peace are in contrast to one another. They don't exist together. You can have one or the other. And he says, if you want to pursue a life of peace, it's going to give life to your body. But envy, looking to your left and your right to determine where you're at based on where everybody else is, it's going to rot your bones. His next line in Ecclesiastes says this, 
this too, it's meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. After all my observations and everything that I know, being full of wisdom and just watching people my whole life, if you want to live this way, let me just tell you, it's meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. Maybe our response to Solomon there is, well, well, hold on, Solomon, you can't can't catch the wind. What do you mean chasing after the wind? Solomon would say, you're you're right, exactly. You're never going to catch the wind. But you're going to find yourself completely exhausted. When I was thinking this week, as I'm reading through this, how would I paraphrase that in my own words? Here's the statement that I came up with. When who you are, when who you are depends on what someone else does, says, or has, that path will almost always lead you to despair. Let me say it one more time. When who you are depends on what someone else does, says, or has, that path will almost always lead you to despair. So let me do this. We'll kind of call a timeout right here. And uh, I want to read you just several questions to help you to process through what we've already started to uncover. Because again, for many of you, you might be thinking to yourself, man, I didn't know that was there. But it is. And so I just want to help you process through that a little bit more. And so here, uh, here are a handful of questions. Number one, are you exhausted? Are you exhausted with trying to keep up with you fill in the blank? Like maybe you see something on Facebook or social media where that one family or that one friend, oh, they went on another family vacation. Oh, man, they just renovated their house. And you're like, man, I wish I didn't even see it. I wish I didn't even know that because of the envy that's like bubbling up inside of me. Are you exhausted with trying to keep up with you fill in the blank? Are you broke? Question number two, are you broke because you're trying to keep up with fill in the blank? Have you made some unnecessary purchases? Have you bought things in extended credit maybe further than you needed to because you're just trying to keep up with an image, a person, a family? You fill in the blank. Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what you have? Think about this. Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what you have? Maybe you and your spouse worked the majority of your life and you saved up money and you finally were able to get into your own home and you got into that one house and man, you got eight foot ceilings and you're so pumped. It's like, man, I always want a house with eight foot ceilings and you walk into your friend's house with 10 foot ceilings and you're like, I hate my house. I hate my house. Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what you have? Next one. Are you enjoying your children? Or are you pushing them so hard because of what you see other kids accomplishing? Do you know that there are couples who would love to have your son or daughter, but they can't? Are you enjoying your kids? Or are you just keep pushing them so hard because you want them to keep up with what you see other kids accomplishing? Last one. It's a big one. Who would you secretly enjoy seeing, seeing fail? We're getting real, aren't we? Who would you secretly enjoy seeing fail? Let me say it one more time. You can't genuinely love someone who you also secretly hope will fail. So what does this mean? Does this mean we're not supposed to strive for success? We're not supposed to have ambition? We're not supposed to have goals and want to, to you know, increase our savings accounts? No, it's not any of that. And Solomon actually alludes to that in his very next statement. He says this, fools fold their hands and they ruin themselves. So again, he's saying 
what he's talking about is looking to the left and looking to the right and envy and determining where we are based on where everybody else is. He's like, hold on a second, because I'm not saying you should just fold your hands and fold your arms and sit back and not do anything. Fools do that. That's laziness, and Solomon just alludes. That's not what I'm talking about, but then he finishes. He says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, let's talk about this, because I love the imagery here. What Solomon is saying is, better to have one handful and say, I'm going to enjoy this. However little or however a lot it might be, I'm going to enjoy it. It's what God's given me. It could be your family and the house you do have, the job you have, the, the neighbors, the friends, the church. I'm, I'm just going to enjoy this. God, thanks for giving me this. And tranquility is just another word for, for peace and contentment and satisfaction. I'm satisfied. Lord, I'm satisfied. Thank you for this. I'm going to enjoy it. And because I've got one handful, I'm just going to keep this other hand open. And I'm going to allow you to give and take as you please. And through that process, I, I hope I learn a deeper submission to you because it really is all yours to begin with. But I'm going to live open-handedly. I'm going to enjoy this. Man, I'm going to enjoy this. But God, I want to learn how to remain generous. And so the things that you're giving me here, I know that you can give and take away. And so as you're giving, I'm going to learn how to give this to even other people. Sometimes I'll give some of this back to you. I'll invest in kingdom endeavors. I'll give to people that are in need. I'll give whatever that looks like. And when we live this way, we're content. We're not looking over here, and we're not looking over here to see how we're measuring up with everybody else. But we're living with peace and contentment and enjoying the things that we have. Instead of doing this, which is what he alludes to next, better than two handfuls with toil. Man, look what I've got. I'm going to hold on to it. And man, I got more than they do, but I want what they have. And we hold on to these things and we start to say things to ourselves like, this is mine, but I want more. And Solomon says, if this is how you decide to live, if this is what you choose to do, it's going to be like chasing after the wind. And remember, you can't catch the wind. And so you're just going to find yourself absolutely exhausted. Friends, there is no wind. There is no wind in comparison. So maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, okay, Aaron, now what? you've surfaced some things in my life that maybe I haven't been aware of up till now, and so after you've kind of broken this down for me, I'll raise my hand and say, me too. So now what? Like, how do we stop doing this? What do we do about it? And before I even attempt to answer that question, I want to read to you one more statement, and it's actually a warning to some extent. Here's what it is. Friends, it might be impossible. It might be. It might be impossible to genuinely follow Jesus Christ and chase the wind at the same time. It might be impossible to genuinely be a, a follower of Jesus and live this way where it's like, I got more than they've got, but I want what they have. It might be impossible to be a follower of Jesus when we're secretly hoping that other people fail so that we can feel better about who we are. It might be impossible to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ when we're looking around at everybody else to determine if we're doing okay. So what do we do? What do we do? Here's the simple answer. We change our mirror. We change our reference point. Because God never wanted us to look to our left and to our right to determine if we're doing okay. He always wanted us to look up to determine if we're okay. So here's what I want to do again. I just want to ask you a couple questions. I just want to help you process through this information this morning. Here's the first question. Who or what has been your mirror that you look to to determine if you're okay? Who or what has been your mirror 
that you look to to determine if you're okay. Friends, awareness is almost always the beginning step to healing and transformation in our life. So who or what have you been looking to to determine if you're okay? What's been your mirror? Number two, who does your heavenly father compare you to? Who does your heavenly father compare you to? Now, for the person in here that wants to throw out the Sunday school answer, Jesus! No, he doesn't. Like, he, he needs Jesus to be inside of your life. If you want salvation, spend eternity with Christ in heaven, with the Father in heaven, you need to have the righteousness of Christ inside of you. That's why we put our faith in him, and because of the cross, our sins are forgiven. He needs that to happen, but he doesn't compare you to Jesus. Just in case you need the answer. He doesn't compare you to anyone. Once again, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we read that we actually become children of God. If you'll put your faith in Jesus, it says, for those that would believe in his name, they earn the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Friends, when you put your faith in Christ, you become his kids. And just like a good parent, he wants the best for his kids. And so as we're looking up, and, or maybe as we're looking side to side, and we're thinking, am I okay? I guess I got a little bit more than they are. I'm a little bit better mom than they are. We got a little bit better marriage than they do. I've got a little bit more money in my account than they do. So I think I'm okay. Our marriage is not as good as they are. I'm not as good as mom as they are. I'm filling the blank. But God is looking down. He's saying, you're okay. And even if you don't feel okay, it's okay to not feel okay. And it doesn't mean that I'm done with you yet because as my kid, I want the best for you. I want the most for you. i got things I want to accomplish in and through your life. I've got things in store for you. So even though I'm not done with you yet, you're okay. You're okay. Last question. If that's true, then whose estimation of you should you use when evaluating you? Whose estimation of you should you use when evaluating you? Should it be all the things happening around us are who God says we are. He says you're okay. Whose estimation of you should you use when evaluating you? Guys, here's what I want for all of us because I know it's what God wants for all of us. If we can't genuinely, potentially, if we can't genuinely follow Jesus and also secretly want people to fail at the same time, here's what I've concluded. that would be a great action step for all of us. Let's learn how to genuinely Rejoice when things are going good in people's lives and genuinely mourn when things aren't going so good in people's lives. And so here's three specific action steps. Number one, change your mirror. Stop looking to the left or right. You're always going to be better than somebody and you're always going to be doing worse than somebody else. Change your mirror. Number two, pray against the feeling. Pray against that little feeling inside of us, that wickedness that the Bible talks about our hearts are wicked, pray against that feeling of elation when something is not going so well in other people's lives and it makes you feel a little bit better about your own personal life. And I think the best way to do that, maybe a filter for all of us, is when we feel that, we immediately pray for that person instead. Replace it immediately. When you feel that, this will allow it to be a trigger, a switch, a filter that says, okay, I'm feeling it, I hate it, it's there, I'm gonna pray for that person instead. And then pray for yourself. Pray for God to remove that from you. Whatever it is. Pray for God to get that crap out of you. Number two, or I'm sorry, number three, let's genuinely learn to mourn when things aren't going so well in people's life and genuinely learn to rejoice because you can't, 
You can't genuinely love someone if you secretly hope they will fail. Here's what I want to do. I want to make a, a small detour here. And I want to give a plug for our neighboring groups. If you ask me, probably one of the best places to learn how to do this is in one of our neighboring groups. I call it a biblical community. Because in these neighboring groups, you're always going to find people that might be doing a little bit better than you in certain areas. And people that are doing a little bit worse than you in certain areas. Marriage, finances, jobs, relationships. And it'll give you a place to practice. God wants you in community anyway. And even though we just read Solomon talk about these things that almost sound negative, and it's almost like, man, after I've made my conclusions at the end of my life and I've made all these observations, man, life is just one big competition where everybody's looking around and what's driving them is envy of what everybody else has. But then he kind of backs up because you jump down just a couple more verses and it's almost as if he's alluding to it. It doesn't mean I want you to disconnect from people. I don't want you to disconnect from people because in all my wisdom, I also know the importance of putting yourself in the, in the midst, in the environment, in a environment where there's other people that you can do life with. And, he's and he talks about this beginning in verse 9, and this is what I'll close with. He says this, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, genuinely helping people. And mourning when people are mourning when things aren't going so well in their life. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and, de <clears throat> and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three, man, that's even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. God wants us walking and living and doing community with others. And if we want to genuinely be a follower of Jesus, we have to learn to mourn when people mourn and learn to rejoice when people rejoice. And so that stuff inside of us this morning, let's just begin to remove it. If you're interested in a neighboring group, we're going to have an opportunity for you to get plugged in today. Just go out to guest services, and we'd love to get you involved. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to transition into a time of response. God, this is one of those conversations where things start to <clears throat> come to light, start to be revealed to us, and we don't like it. We don't like what we see. None of us probably would ever admit this. I mean, who wants to admit that you want somebody else to not succeed in life? But sometimes even when we feel it, we push it away and act like it never even happened. And God, instead of just beating ourselves up with guilt, let's just help us recognize it. And again, the Bible talks about it. I mean, that, it's our flesh. Tell us our heart is wicked, and so we constantly need Jesus every single day to help us process through that kind of nastiness. Father, I think we're all guilty at some level. And so I pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit to come and just help us to remove this, to get rid of it, to replace it with prayer for that person, God, and, and truly partner with us and help us to learn how to genuinely love people by rejoicing when things are going well and mourning when things are not going so well. And I believe if we can get that figured out, we're going to have probably one of the deepest connections with you that we could possibly have. God, partner with us. We need your help. We cannot do this alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.